Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast about electronic music and all things synth. I'm Karis C and in this episode I have the honour of talking to Suzanne Chani, who's a bit of a synthesizer and electronic music legend. Suzanne did loads of futuristic sound design in the 1970s, such as that iconic Coca-Cola bottle opening sound that many of us will be familiar with. She's also composed a Hollywood film soundtrack and is a Grammy-nominated artist. Suzanne's career is still very much flourishing as she tours around the world and releases music on Andy Votel's Finders Keepers label. In this online conversation between Manchester, UK and California, Suzanne talks about her path into electronic music, her deep relationship with the Bookler synthesizer, and how quadraphonic sound is the natural home for electronic music. First of all, I'm going to play you a minute or so of Suzanne's music to get you in the zone. Wonderful to speak to you today. I've been working electronic music for over 20 years now and of course know of your pioneering work in the electronic and synth-based music worlds. And yeah, wonderful to talk to you today. How are you doing? Great, Caro. It's, it's my pleasure to speak with you. Obviously you have a huge sort of CV portfolio experience, wisdom behind you and um, yeah, I thought it'd be nice to unpack that a bit. So very much from how you're feeling it at the moment. Could you tell us a bit about your path into electronic music? Aha, let's see. I would say what comes up is Berkeley, California. So I had heard of electronic music when I was still an undergraduate in Boston because uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology was my, my brother's school. And uh, that was the first time, you know, we had a little evening uh, get-together with the music class. My music class was very tiny, uh, about four or five people. And we went to MIT, and the professor there was trying to make a sound with his computer. Now, this was, I graduated from undergrad in, in let's see, 68. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that Early, really. I mean, there had been some life in electronic music, but news didn't travel fast then. We didn't have all these systems of interconnection. And so I really didn't know anything until I got to the West Coast, where I went to graduate school in music composition. And that just happened to be the right place to be at the right time, because that's where Don Buchla was. 
He's really credited with being the first, who cares, you know, specifically. But, you know, he invented an analog modular electronic music instrument. I met him in Berkeley. He was in Berkeley his whole life. And when I came back out to the West Coast, you know, many years later, we reconnected. And had he already invented um, his 200, for example, by the time you met him? Or was that still in development? He really had done the, you know, he had his initial assignment with uh, Mort Sabotnik. And who knows what that looked like. Then he had the 100 system. By the time I came along, you know, when I finished graduate school, I went right to work for him. And I was soldering circuit boards at a big table with a few other people. And we were making the 200s. Uh-huh. Yeah. I came in full-blown during the 200. And to me, that 200 system was the apotheosis of, you know, an- pure analog instrument design it was so amazing and and what I find really interesting is you you were particularly and you probably still are particularly attracted to the getting away from the keyboard approach well the funny thing was that I was a pianist Mm, that's right yeah so that was my childhood instrument of love but I was completely indoctrinated by Buchla wow yeah he knew that the keyboard was dangerous because there was no understanding back then. You know, these things were new. Nobody knew what they were. They couldn't figure out even if they were musical instruments. And the downfall of the whole possibility of looking at this new instrument in a new way was when they put a keyboard on it. Yeah, right. Yeah, Dick Mills from the Radiophonic Workshop says the same thing, actually. Yes, I can see that. It narrows the focus and the palette. And that is the exciting thing about electronic sound back then. And still now, I'm falling in love with the possibilities of electronic sound all over again at the moment. I just, ah, the way you can touch things beyond the societal constraints of diatonic pitch or whatever. And other constraints, you know, the constraints of digital you know, menu diving and mousing and all of those non-real-time interactions. I think, you know, there was a hunger for getting connected again to the immediacy, the feedback loop of doing something and hearing what it does. It's so alive. You know, so here we are. The kids are into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose you could say that you've had a bit of a, would you call it a renaissance of your career, a revival of your career? You know, it's funny because I always dreamt of this uh, situation, Mm. that analog electronic music, you know, that everybody would have. And it's hard. We didn't even use the word synthesizer back then. Again, this was a Buchla thing because synthesizer connoted, you know, synthetic. People just immediately thought of, uh, you know, a keyboard instrument. So it's a little bit of a mouthful not to use it, (laughs) you know. Electronic music, analog, modular, you know. But anyway, in the day, in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, my feeling was that this was just around the corner. Right. This is not an unusual, uh, you know, outlook. I was reading the book about the theremin. Have you read that book? No, but I've watched the beautiful documentary where Leon Theremin gets reunited with Clara Rockmore and he's just in tears listening to her play you know, his instrument. So in the 20s, there were a lot of 
you know, there was a lot of momentum for this theremin. It was mm -hmm. being used in orchestras. They imagined that every household would have one. Instead of kids <laughs> screeching on the violin, they would very quickly adapt to the theremin. And, uh, you know, so this type of vision that this was just around the corner and was going to proliferate, it, it's part of the energy system of this music technology. The fact is, is that it just took a long time. But I think we're here at a very important stage of actually assimilating the concepts that Buchla, I, you know, I'm a Buchla person, he's in my DNA, and I say he's the Leonardo da Vinci of musical instrument design. He's obviously not the only one, um, but for me, because I work so closely with him, I see a lot of this world through his eyes. Yeah, well, obviously, it's a relationship you have with the Buchla, and over however many years, how alive is that relationship now? How has that developed? Well, here we are. You know, Buchla passed away a couple of years ago already. Mm -hmm. And here I found myself, you know, at a similar node, you know, professional node in a way, because I had come back to the Buchla. Before he died, he suggested that I get a system. And I hadn't had one in 25 years, 35 years. Uh-huh, okay. So I did order a 200E. The 200E has a digital component. Yeah. It has a lot of the DNA of the 200, but it's a different animal. So I got it, and it took me a long time. You know, these things happen, they assimilate slowly. It's an organic relationship that has to evolve and develop. And so, you know, if check in a year later, a year and a half later, and I'm starting to warm up to the instrument. Wow. Talking of immediacy, <laughs> that's so interesting, isn't it? In order to get that immediacy, you need the intimacy, in a sense, of that putting in those hours. It's a relationship. And it's, yeah. it's yeah. exploratory. And I don't like to rush anything anyway. You know, there's a flow that happens and I like to be in that flow and I trust that everything will happen that is meant to happen and anyway here I find myself having developed a new relationship with this 200E and I'm starting to miss a lot of things from the 200 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so now you know there have been a lot of episodic you know things going on with the with the whole relationship because the Buchla company was sold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been rebought, not in total, but I'm now working with the Buchla company. For many years, mm -hmm. I didn't because of Buchla. Right. Yeah. So now we're back in contact and we're looking at redoing the 200 and some of the modules. Uh-huh, Okay. So I'm very excited. I know there's a lot of reissue going on, you know, in a lot of uh, companies. And a pure reissue, uh, you know, of the 200 would be wonderful for me. The only thing is that it is not as compact. And if I'm on the road, which I have been mm. for the last four years, trucking my uh, or airplaning my bukla in a suitcase all over the world, the compactness of it 
is essential. Mm-hmm. And the robustness. You know, I remember even taking a Korg Poly 800 across to Berlin too many times and it went, nope, I've had enough now. <laughs> it just didn't like the traveling too much. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm glad we share those, you know, experiences. Of what that anxiety management skill. <laughs> you know, when it's on, we love it. When it's off, it's like, mm. Would you say there's any other instruments that are just as integral to your sound as the buckler? Well, if we're talking about now, I mean, certainly historically, I've had a wonderful relationship with prophets, mm-hmm. you know, with Dave Smith's instruments. One of my things is that I want to interact. I want to be able to change the sound and do whatever I do. And the Prophet 5 lent itself very much to that. I mean, certainly there was a this menu of preset sounds, but you could actually interact with it. And now my new interactive, traditional, more traditional instrument is the Moog 1. Okay. It is beautifully designed. And there's, even though there's no particular physical patching, the interface is so elegant. You know, they have these little buttons all over, you know, in every single department. And you can go in deeper to that particular, Mm. you know, whatever it is, filter, module, envelope. Um, And I'm loving working with that. I have also, I just did something with Moog for the Moog Subharmonicon. And rhythmically, it was just like a new frontier. I mean, it's, it was, it's an analog control of time. You know, we get so used to time being divided up into these little slices of quarter notes, eighth notes, 16, 32, whatever it is. Whereas the subharmonicon, you can just throw in there any kind of division that flourishes into this, you know, defined space. And then you go back to the... So you have a combination of the defined rhythm with a completely kind of unpredictable rhythm that comes out and then goes back in. So I'm, I'm really loving it. It's very alive. It feels like, you know, crickets singing in the field. I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's organic. Actually, I noticed how the natural world plays a big part in your sound worlds. I love how the ocean sound is a is a popular one for you to almost ground yourself when you start on your journeys of discovery live or recorded, actually. Well said. It is a grounding place. It is. And it became that. You know, my first album was Seven Waves. And I didn't realize at the time, you know, now I have a different perspective, but how perfectly suited the bukla was to making waves and to this day there's no better instrument for making wave sounds you know people didn't even know they were made by machine they thought they were real which is so strange to me now i live on the ocean i have the real sounds right outside my window and i do confuse them you know with the with the inside sounds. <laughs> they do sound the same to me in many ways. It's kind of art imitates nature. 
imitates yeah. art. Yeah. I never forget, we did a commission down in a tiny little island called Hailing Island, which is just off Portsmouth. We were there for five days and we had that five days and then my commission was to make a sort of sound poem, really. And it was funny, the whole five days, because I thought, oh, I'm going to collect all these sounds. And oh, obviously we're going to have the sea and we're going to have this. The wind just went, nope. Nope, you're not having any of those sounds. <laughs> so it wasn't until the last morning I managed to get a little bit of waves lapping. But apart from that, the wind just wasn't having it. I just thought it was brilliant because it meant I needed to go home. And you synthesise that for yourself. Just being given an MS-20 Mini. So I actually just spent time getting all the, the whooshes and the swishes from that. And, and I actually really like that journey of it not being fed to me direct from, from a microphone kind of thing. And it was that, no, it's got to go through me and then come back out. That's funny that the wind, it does take over, doesn't it? Yeah. You can't do anything when the wind is there. I know. And yet to actually record the wind nicely is also really hard. So it's the sound recordist's um, greatest challenge, I think. <laughs> Which is good. Keeps us in our place. So finders, keepers, you know, they, Andy Votel, he's always surprising me. He, you know, he's releasing these very old uh, recordings. And the next one is... Uh, has a lot of wind in it. It's called Denali, and I had done it for a, a documentary film about climbing Denali. And, uh, you know, I haven't been able to find this film. I can't remember who who came to me, the mountain climber, and uh, the sound files are, of course, very archaeological. You know, they're, they're not high quality, uh, but they do have good sonic musical evidence, I guess. Um, but there's a lot of wind in that because of climbing that mountain. I mean, the wind was made on the bukla, mm. of course. But um, Yeah, wow, lush. And that's coming out soon, is it? Yes, it is. Yeah, Andy's amazing. You know, he does all this. I He came to me, whatever it was, many years ago now. He said, do you have anything in your vault and I thought, well, I've got a huge vault of stuff, you know, that came out from New York and it's been sitting in there for, you know, 25 years just here. And I wasn't really interested in going into the vault. I found it depressing. I didn't know where to start. There was just too much stuff in there. And I had lost the um, index. You know, I had had a numbers on boxes with contents and that was lost. But then mm -hmm. I, I realized that these tapes were disintegrating and that they needed to be transferred anyway. So I started this little project of just uh, transferring the tapes. And uh, then I just, you know, I just sent some to Andy without thinking that there's anything there, you know. Magic. Yeah, he's good at unearthing that treasure. I guess it's treasure. You know, it's for me, it's a little... Here I spent my whole life developing my professional skills, you know, working <laughs> in the trenches of New York City, music production at the best studios in the world with the best musicians and, the, you know, all of that. And then out comes these things that I did in my garage before I knew what I was doing, you know? And it's like, oh my God, I listen to it and I think, oh, that high end is distorting. Oh, that rhythm is a little bit out. Uh, you know, I certainly got a lot better playing, you know, in time over the years. Uh, but 
you know, there is some life force in these things. Yeah, and that's it. I feel like, especially with my Delia Derbyshire Day charity, part of it is is that we're at a point in electronic music where it helps us to take stock and look back and it helps us to honour the ancestors, I call it, you know, of, of where we're at now and, and that lineage, really. You know, I mean, when I discovered people like yourself and Daphne Arm and Delia Derbyshire, it gave me a lineage instead of being this, oh, you're weird because you're a woman doing this. It's like, no, I'm just weird and there's plenty of us and it's wonderful. Oh, my God, aren't you lucky? <laughs> yeah, exactly. When Andy said something about my being the Delia Derbyshire of the electronic, or I, I don't know what. Atari age or something, yeah. I didn't, I had never heard of Delia Derbyshire. No way. I didn't know her at all. Here I am in the United States, and maybe everybody knew her in, you know, where you live. And so for me, this was a discovery, a very important discovery. And then that discovery, you know, just a year and a half ago included Daphne Oram. Well, my theory about women and electronic music was that it was just the perfect intuitive venue for them because you could do it on your own. Yeah, exactly. This is what I found exactly, let's say, the most possibly accessible instrument nowadays. If you can have a laptop, a pair of headphones, I could develop my sound. I was using analog stuff as well, but I could develop my sound without somebody telling me how it should sound. And then you start to really develop your world and that agency. That's where electronic music is more accessible in that way. And it also appealed to women because they didn't have this huge investment already you know, in those early days anyway, in the way things were done, you know, that sonic world that men had created, uh, you know, their go-to ways of getting sound, you know, a go-to EQ for a, for a bass guitar or whatever it was. And women, yeah. women had fresh ears. They weren't invested. Yeah. And so yeah. I found that I worked better with female engineers because I was doing something that didn't have a go-to solution. And the guys I worked with, I worked with wonderful male engineers too, but I always felt more comfortable with the women because they, they were intuitive and understood that this was not what already had been, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. You, there's no manual to refer to or no formulas, conventions to refer to, and that's the point. Yeah. So Yay. I think women have had a very, very important... My, the last time, you know, when I, did, when I was playing at uh, Royal Albert Hall, the BBC proms, and before the show, you know, this camera person came up to me and said, well, tell me what you think about, you know, uh, Daphne Oram. And I thought, hmm, that, excuse me, that didn't conjure up anything in my little empty brain. <laughs> There's nothing in there about Daphne Oram. And... Uh, after the show, I absolutely had a meltdown. I cried. I mean, this woman was mm. remarkable. Her symphony, which they premiered after 70, oh, I know. 70 I know. years. Yeah. Oh, my God. But it is a good time. I mean, you know, in the early days, what I, get, I used to write letters to the editors of these sound magazines because the only women you saw in them were modeling, you know, equipment. And, you know, let's face it, we, we don't like that representation to be our exclusive visibility. 
aren't we out there professionally doing stuff? Yeah. I love how you describe the possibilities of electronic sound, giving you both freedom and control. And I love how these two are always an interplay, I think. Well, it's a feedback system. So, you know, it, it is definitely something that you interact with in a, in a way that you're learning all the time. You know, you're, you, you do things and then you can tweak and respond. And that's the beauty of it, is that it's real-time interaction. Yeah. I also love how you talk about how quadraphonic sound is the natural home for electronic music. Well, you know, I grew up in quad because Buchla, right from the very beginning, had a quad interface. By the time I came along and worked with him, there was a module called the 227 with voltage control of spatial location. He also had a voltage-controlled reverb. It was a silly spring reverb, but you could move the sound closer or farther away with a control voltage. So you had all this, you know, possibility of creating imaginary spaces. I just took that for granted. That's where I lived. I always played in quad. So when it came time to perform, you know, to do concerts in New York. I had a gig at Avery Fisher Hall, and it's in the big, you know, the complex, classical complex. And I said, oh, good. I said, and now I need two speakers in the back. And they said, absolutely not. We are not doing that. And I said, but wait a minute. I can't play without those. And so the concert, I had to cancel the concert. I actually don't know how to play if it's not in quad. So when I came back to this performance mode, you know, 40 years later, I was thrilled because at first there was a little bit of a resistance. It's like, are you kidding? You know, these big festivals, they didn't want to deal with two more, you know, big speaker towers to match the front ones. But I absolutely had my threshold of, you know, possibility, and I would just say, well, then I can't play. And if you do hold the line, they do come through. Like, this is non-negotiable. You need that or I don't play. And so, I don't know why, maybe it's because spatial sound is now just more generically part of our world, but I don't have any problem now coming back to this idea that it's, you know, a native thing for electronics, um, it is. It is. And it's the most suitable content for spatial sound. It just is. And uh, I think the first time around when it failed, it was because there was no content, because they were making, you know, uh, replications of the standard concert hall experience. And, you know, putting the back of the theater in the back two speakers, and it was quite boring, not very immersive, not very interesting. And electronic music, you know, it's a monophonic signal, basically, and it comes alive when it moves. And it can move in such an integrated, meaningful way, because the movement is voltage-controlled, just like the rest of it. You know, with the 227, the Buchla 227, I have all that at my fingertips. I'm waiting to see 
the Euro rack people come up with a, a good spatial interface. Right. And talking of what you're looking forward to, is there any unrealized dreams that you think are now they're around the corner or they should be or they could be? Well, it's funny, you know, in technology, it's like there are always expectations and then there's a gap. So you envision something, you think it's around the corner, 10 years later, there it is, 50 years later, there it is. And so I guess, you know, one of the places that I always look is just in the past. Uh, You know, what did I expect was going to be there immediately. This is where we were back then. Um, I had designed a piece of furniture, which was for 12 people, a big circular, uh, soft, you know, pellet pillow. And each, uh, each location that would hold a person had its sequencer control. So it's kind of interactive music, you know, where everybody was lying around and tuning their own pitch in the sequence. Oh, like an electronic choir. Yeah. It's just fun. Will that happen? I mean, I don't know. But I did always think that when I had my bukla, I mean, it filled my space. It was on all the time. And I lived in it. So I had these patterns that were going and interactive, you know, self-generating pieces. And it was just kind of like the air that you breathed. And it was very comforting and just nice and non-intrusive, just like a big airy cushion of sound that was alive and and constant. So I used to think, you know, then, then this music came along and the idea that you could have background sound, you know, that was uh, old pop tunes that you didn't really have to listen to very closely. I always thought that there would be a more creative background sound, that when people get adapted to these uh, analog instruments, they will have them. I don't know if this is really feasible. You know, I, I did come from a very particular world, and I think we always see our own outlook as being much more expansive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Let's leave it on that expansive note. Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's been such a joy to speak with you. And all the best with your continued voyages of discovery. Marvellous. And uh, all the best to you, Kara. Thank you. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out the show notes for further information as well as links and details of the other episodes in the electronic music series. And just before you go, let me point you to soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts where you can explore what's on our other channels. This has been a Caro C production for Sound on Sound.